Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, Ukraine reinforces its army in Avdivka as Russian forces push into the city. We discuss the war of words between Donald Trump and NATO leaders, and interview author and translator Tatyana Denford, who worked on the translation for the Oscar-nominated film 20 Days in Mariupol. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 12th of February, one year and 352 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, and author and translator, Tatiana Denford. I started by bringing us up to speed on the latest updates from the front lines. Let's start down in Avdivka, the embattled Ukrainian-held town north of Donetsk city. Russian troops are engaged in fighting with Ukrainian forces inside the beleaguered town, which has been under sustained Russian assault since mid-October. We now believe Ukraine is reinforcing the eastern city with fresh forces, a top commander has said on Telegram. Brigadier General Oleksandr Tarnavsky, the commander of the Tavria Army Group, said... Quote, we strengthen the blocking line, set up additional firing positions and use fresh, effective forces. Logistical delivery continues. The commander added that Russian forces were attempting to capture the Donetsk region city at any cost and as soon as possible. Ukrainian forces defending against the onslaught face an increasingly perilous situation with widespread reports of manpower and ammunition shortage. The decision to continue bolstering Kiev's defences of the city rather than retreat to a more fortified position raises the prospect of a repeat of the brutal months-long battle over nearby Bakhmut. Ukraine recently deployed its 47th Brigade, which was armed and trained by NATO to fight in the failed counteroffensive to Avdivka, and General, Brigadier General Tarnavsky's remarks could hint towards the 3rd Brigade, that's one of Ukraine's best units being brought in to fight for the city. Till now, the unit has been in reserve, receiving training on Western weaponry. Russian forces, however, continued to make advances around Avdivka over the weekend. Geolocated footage from the Institute for the Study of War reported newly gained positions for Moscow's troops, both in southern Avdivka and in northern parts of the important city. Vitaly Barabash, the head of the city's military administration, said last week that the situation around the town is becoming very difficult, even critical in some areas. And we'll come back to this later. I know Joe has some more thoughts and information on this. So moving on. On Friday, at least seven people, including three children, were killed in a wave of Russian drone attacks across the country. Officials in Kharkiv said that an entire family of five were killed when a drone hit an oil depot, which caught fire and burnt down neighbouring houses. Ihor Tadekov, the mayor of Kharkiv, wrote, This was a difficult night for Kharkiv. Seven dead, including three children. One baby, a child of four, and a seven-year-old. Ole Snihibuhov, Kharkiv's regional governor, said an Iranian-made Shahid drone caused a massive fire that burnt down 15 private houses. 
In Odessa, on Ukraine's southern coast, officials said that Russian drone attacks had injured at least four people in the port area. So, in summary then, Ukrainian officials said that Russia had fired 31 Shahid drones in total, mainly at Kharkiv and Odessa, but also crucially at Reni and Ismail in Ukraine's Danube Delta. Of the 31 drones fired at Ukraine, Ukraine's air force said that 23 were shot down. The attacks on Odessa, Reni and Ismail appear to mirror earlier Russian tactics of attacking port and grain export infrastructure. Remember, Odessa is Ukraine's largest port, and ports at Reni and Ismail are important for sending grain to Europe through the Danube River. Ukrainian officials have repeatedly warned recently that the waves of Russian air attacks are stretching its resources. Yuri Inyat, an Air Force spokesman, told National Television, intense Russian air attack forces us to use a corresponding amount of air defence. That's why we need more of them, as Russia keeps increasing its attack capabilities. Just a few more from me. Last night, Russia launched further attacks against 12 regions of Ukraine, injuring six people in Donetsk and Kherson. This comes from the Kiev Independent. A missile attack on the the town of Selidove in Donetsk left a 63-year-old woman and her two grandsons aged 10 and 17 in hospital. Three more were injured in Kherson after Russia launched 32 strikes, damaging a hospital and port infrastructure. Ukrainian air defence units destroyed 14 of the 17 drones Russia launched overnight and one KH-59 guided missile. Back in Kyiv, looking at some political military developments, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has made further changes to his war cabinet. Kyiv announced on Sunday that former Deputy Defence Minister Lieutenant General Alexander Pavlyuk would become the new commander of Ukraine's ground forces. Pavlyuk, a lieutenant general who served in the ministry role for a year, replaces Colonel General Oleksandr Sersky after he was last week made commander of Ukraine's armed forces. On Saturday, Zelensky announced four other senior military appointments, filling out a rebooted team to bolster Ukraine's defence. Yuri Sodor, the former head of Ukraine's Marine Corps, was named the new commander of Ukraine's combined forces. Brigadier General Ihor Skibiuk as commander of Ukraine's air assault forces and Major General Ihor Plahuta as commander of Ukraine's Territorial Defence Forces. I'm sure we'll go into all of these into slightly more detail when Dom Nichols returns. Finally then, before we go to Joe Barnes, a disturbing story from Ukraine's National Resistance Centre, who claim that Russia has set up military re-education camps to indoctrinate Ukrainian teenagers in occupied Zaporizhia. In a new report, the centre in a new report, the centre says that Moscow plans to open a new camp for quote military sports training and patriotic education of youth called Warrior in the region to the southeast of Ukraine, where children will be taught firearms and engineering training. It alleges that this is quote preparation for service in the Russian army. This report follows news that emerged last year of Russian authorities beating Ukrainian children in an attempt to re-educate them at a Moscow-run youth facility. Just to remind ourselves, since Russia's full-scale invasion in 2022, more than 19,500 Ukrainian children have been abducted and just 387 repatriated. That, again, comes from the Kiev Independent. Well, those are the military and frontline updates. Joe Barnes, can I come to you next? What have you been looking at? Yeah, hi, folks. So I think we should just quickly look at of the implications of what's going on there. So I guess one of the fears after Sersky came in and became the commander-in-chief is that Ukraine and its armed forces would become less flexible in terms of looking at how you defend and withdraw from positions. So Sersky, for context, we've spoken about it, spearheaded the Bakhmut defence, which was credited with blunting the Russian offensive capability 
but it did cost sort of tens of thousands of men, whether they'd been killed or wounded on both sides. So some fear that in Avdivka, you could have that same political push to defend a town, which is basically an untenable defence, which costs a lot more and actually dents your own capabilities, all because it deals slightly more to the Russian side in this case. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. The reason that people are debating whether the 3rd Assault Brigade, which was basically the leading force fighting around Bakhmut during the counteroffensive, um, is because it has been held in reserve in eastern Ukraine for some time now. It's been training on Bradley's, the American infantry fighting vehicle, and they haven't actually had and seen a lot of combat. So they're giving them a bit of time to reconstitute, take on maybe new recruits, train up, and then maybe go again. So it'd be interesting to see if they do get put in the next weeks or so. I've tried to reach out to them. I've not had a response yet. I've spoken to some people in the 47th who wouldn't comment for operational security reasons who is in Abdifka with them, if that is the case. So yeah, that's one to look. But I think what we should do is for the big diplomatic story, we should go to Saturday and look at Donald Trump, the former US president who is basically vying for election or to become the Republican candidate ahead of November's US presidential elections. He has essentially encouraged Russia, and I quote, to do whatever the hell they want, end quote, against NATO allies not sufficiently investing in defence. And this 20-second clip, which was widely shared on social media and has had all sorts of responses to it, has essentially brought brought forward long-held views over the alliance's future. So, Long-time NATO watchers will remember around 2008, around 2014, when Russia was annexing part of Georgia, went into Crimea, started the Donbass War. NATO stood on the sidelines and didn't do a lot. But then, with 2022, it's been brought back to the forefront. It's sort of Joe Biden will often give speeches where he'll bang his hand on the lectern and say, look, look, baby, NATO is back. But now, Donald Trump, this long-term NATO critic and someone who is seen to have friendly, warm relations with Vladimir Putin, is essentially coming out in full force, basically suggesting that anyone, any ally of NATO, um, wouldn't be protected by American military might if they weren't contributing sufficiently to NATO's collective defence, essentially. So this is what Trump had to say. I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You've got to pay. You've got to pay your bills. And that was essentially he was looking back at various conversations he had with NATO leaders when he was president. But why Why is this sort of so terrifying now? So for years, since Donald Trump lost control of the White House, decision makers on the European continent have pondered over whether he could withdraw the US from NATO if ever returned to power by American voters. But so this has sparked an entirely new sort of crisis. And I've been speaking to a few people this morning, the centre of NATO decision making, and they've explained why. So with Donald Trump essentially suggesting he would welcome a Russian attack on one of the alliance's other 30 members, that is far worse than him simply threatening to withdraw America from NATO. What he's doing is causing irreparable harm by making NATO's ironclad core principle worthless. So what is that ironclad core principle? So at the heart of NATO is its Article 5 mutual defence clause. And that is a promise, essentially, that the US would deploy in defence of its European allies if they come under attack. So while the alliance was founded in 1949 on the basis of the North Atlantic Treaty, that Article 5 has no sort of legal standing. It 
is a political promise. It's an article of faith. So essentially by saying, look, why don't you go and attack one of the NATO allies and I will stand by and watch and not stand by that Article 5 promise, just brings the whole like house of cards crashing down. And there's been some really interesting sort of responses in that. So um, NATO, when it comes to like a comms machine, there's a journalist that works and I spend a lot of time in NATO HQ speaking to the press team, is not the most nimblest. It's very hard to get a comment out of them, especially on a Sunday. But Jens Stoltenberg, who's NATO Secretary General, essentially came riding to the rescue and gave journalists and the world, to, to world leaders as well, what they wanted. And he insisted that the alliance remained ready and able to defend all allies in the face of any military threats. This is what Jens Stoltenberg had to say. Any suggestion that allies will not defend each other undermines all of our security, including that of the US, and puts American and European soldiers at increased risk. I expect that, regardless of who wins the presidential election, the US will remain a strong and committed NATO ally. Um, Joseph Burrell, the uh, EU's top foreign diplomat, had this to say, let's be serious, NATO cannot be an a la carte military alliance. It cannot be a military alliance that works depending on the humour of the president of the US. It exists or it does not exist. So essentially, the future of NATO being called into question. But what's being done about it and what's really sparked this? Back when Trump was US president, he would argue that there weren't enough European countries, mainly, and he aimed his frustrations at Germany and Angela Merkel at the time, the German chancellor, that he said weren't hitting NATO's target for military spending, which is each member, each ally is expected to spend 2% of GDP on defence. And he basically said, look, why should America come to your aid if you're not trying to basically do it for yourself? Don't just rely on us. But what's interesting here is Donald Trump is wrong on this front, or he's very wrong. So if you look at what he's saying, he's essentially saying that being part of NATO has this scheme where you're expected to pay your bills. That's not the case. It's not a, it's not a transaction. You don't pay in X amount to get collective defence back. It's, a, it's an alliance built on promises of a political nature rather than stone cast funding and stuff. So NATO doesn't actually have its own money. It's all based on a promise. And as part of that promise, everyone wants to look at spending that much and doing so much for what they call burden sharing, but it's not always there. So I think by a summit in July this year, I think about 20 NATO members out of 31 will be hoping to hit their 2% target, including Germany, which will be hitting it for the first time. But now let's have a quick look at what people are doing about it. So if you speak to representatives of NATO allies who are also members of the European Union, they will stress that what the European Union has been doing in terms of bolstering its collective defences itself, um, they are now more important than ever because they can no longer trust on with Donald Trump essentially pulling and casting doubt over Article 5. They can no longer trust on NATO being an ultimate security guarantor. So they're looking at building more bilateral combination, trilateral combinations of, say, the German Sky Shield Initiative is a good example of this, which the Germans would always use. They have got 20 or so countries that are all working together to form a new European uh, air defence system and network, which is outside of NATO, but is made up of NATO allies. You had the European Union is trying to find its and build its own contracts to replace stockpiles for munitions that have been sent to Ukraine. So it's all looking at various different alternatives 
to NATO in case America doesn't come to the rescue. And that's really going to think going to become a real serious consideration um, as we move forward. But I will stop there on that one and quickly move to the Danish defence minister who last week warned that Russia could go to war with NATO in as little as three years. So Trollsland Paulson, Paulson, sorry, um, who is also a Danish deputy prime minister, said, sorry, it cannot be ruled out that within three to five year, a three to five year period, Russia will test Article 5 and NATO solidarity. That was not NATO's assessment in 2023. This is new information that is coming to the fore now. And he told that to a Danish newspaper. So you can see why people are really panicking about Donald Trump pouring cold water over Article 5 when you find more and more countries warning about the prospect of war, mainly with Russia. So the Danish join the likes of the UK, Sweden, Romania, Germany, who have all raised fears over the increasing threat posed by Russia. And I'll stop there, David. Joe, do you get the sense then in Brussels that amongst the people you speak to, diplomats, advisors, they're taking the idea that Donald Trump could be president again seriously enough? I mean, do you get the sense that those conversations are starting or at the moment is it still mainly comms? What do you think? You know what? The people do take it seriously because they see it as a two-course race at the moment. It's the Republicans versus the Democrats. And on both sides, the basically Joe Biden is one of them and Donald Trump is the other. And that's how they see it. I know it's not a foregone conclusion. Donald Trump still has to win the Republican nomination. But people see it as there's not anything really else capturing the imagination of the American people and members of those parties. But I think what was interesting, I was speaking to one person today, and they basically said, look, Trump or not, this threat has really focused our minds and basically brought in the suggestion is that Europe has to be ready to defend itself without America. We have to get to a stage where we can do that because can we always count on America? It might not be the fact that they trust Joe Biden to come to their aid, but there's going to be countless presidents down the line in the next sort of 50 years and all of them going to be trusted? Maybe not. We don't know. So they're looking to make Europe more resolute because of it. Thank you so much for that, Joe. I know we'll come back to you later for some more updates. Well, it's a great honour to welcome Tatiana Danford to today's podcast to speak a little bit about 20 Days in Mariupol. I'll just intro that in case listeners don't know. 20 Days in Mariupol, nominated for an Oscar in the Best Documentary category for Films, is a stark and brutal film that showcases the worst and the best of humanity. It's the true story of a team of Ukrainian journalists trapped in the besieged city of Mariupol in the early days of the invasion. They continue to do their work, documenting the atrocities of the Russian invasion. Soon, they are the only international reporters left in the city, and the images they manage to send back to their editors of dead children, digging mass graves, the story of the bombed maternity hospital, and more, are seared onto our consciences. It's, as I said, an honour to be joined by Tetiana, who worked on the translations for the film. Tetiana, thank you so much for joining us. I saw the film yesterday, so I can share some of my thoughts later, but I wanted to ask you, first of all, how did you get involved? How did you become a translator for the film? Sure. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to chat to you about this work. And to any Ukrainian listeners, Privit. I actually started working for Frontline in 2014 because somehow they found me and reached out to me to translate the footage that they were getting with the Maidan revolution, revolution of dignity in Ukraine. And I ended up translating a documentary that they did called The Battle for Ukraine, which you can find actually on Frontline PBS or on YouTube, I believe. And from then on, I was on call 
for them for any Ukrainian translation work that they needed off and on. And in 2022, in February, obviously, when the attack on Ukraine happened, they reached out to me at the end of March to say, hey, we need you very kindly. <laughs> and the producer, actually, Robin Parmley, she put me in touch with, because I've worked with her, just her, basically, in the previous documentary. And she actually put me in touch with Michelle Meisner, who is the senior editor and production coordinator for documentaries for Frontline. And she put us both in contact and highly recommended me, which again is very kind. But Michelle and I then ended up working closely. And she said that, okay, we have really urgent footage coming out. Now, at the time, I was not aware, well, none of us were aware of the gravity of the situation, but she was saying that Mr. Slav was delivering footage that was coming out of Mariupol and would I be available? I was, I said, absolutely, of course. And it went from there. So when you see the footage of Mr. Slav and Yevhenny leaving Mariupol and rescuing the footage, just imagine me and other translators sitting thousands of miles away waiting for this footage to show up on our doorstep. And then began hours of months and weeks and days and of late nights working on this footage. So yeah, I'm very lucky to work for Frontline for as long as I have. They are an amazing team of people who constantly deliver truth to kind of Western audiences. So yeah, so everybody knows what's going on. Tatiana, could you speak a little bit more about the specific footage you translated, the people involved, and maybe what was it like seeing some of this stuff for the very first time? Sure. Um, I When we were waiting for uh, Mr. Slav's footage to show up, they I was being sent actually interviews of people who were held captive in torture chambers who ended up surviving. That is footage that actually I'm not sure whether there's another documentary that will be coming out. I'm still working with Mr. Slav and Michelle on other pieces. So that may be being put together. So I'm not going to say too much about it, but it was about Bucha and uh, Yablonska Street and a lot of the places that people were taken to and held there for a while. And then I started getting piecemeal footage, like most translators do. You get what comes in and you start working on that. So my translation work started with the all of the hospital scenes in 20 days. So I started with that and with toddlers trying to be resuscitated and dying on the table, victims coming in from shelling, the interviews where you see cameras facing people who were hiding in bomb shelters and the woman sitting behind a candle, as you see in the trailer, crying, saying that she just wants to be back home. She wants Ukraine to be Ukraine. She doesn't want to be part of Russia. The little girl saying, I don't want to die. And the officer who ended up protecting the press. So he made the decision, which was basically a life and death decision. And I remember translating him. He was standing there. It was towards the end of the movie where he's standing at the hospital and he says he wants to make a statement. And he says it in Ukrainian and then he says it in English, but he ended up 
saying, I do not stand for this. He made a huge statement. He was saying how important it is for this footage to get out. And he made the decision to cover the press to get them out instead of helping the people who were stuck in the hospital, which I cannot imagine how you make that decision. But he had to see that the truth was, if this footage didn't get out, then nobody would know what happened in Mariupol. Um, So, um, gosh, what else? The people burying fresh kind of bodies and body bags and mass graves, the grave diggers that were there saying it's awful what is happening, the lady saying what has happened to my home. There's so many scenes that are all now a blur. I think the thing, and I said this on Twitter the other day, and it kind of people, it really resonated with people. And I still get quite emotional when I recall it. But one of the scenes that stuck with me when I first saw it was the, um, uh, the scene where um, the father has to say goodbye to his son who was playing football and was killed by a missile. And he just kept saying, uh, God, I'm just getting a bit emotional thinking about it. Um, he was kept saying, my son, my son. And he was just sobbing and trying to reach his son through this white sheet that was covering his dead body. I mean, it was just, and I think I, as I am honored to be a translator uh, to bring kind of this to Western audiences, I'm honored to be able to speak the language, but it created scars for me and I'm sure for other translators um, that will live with me forever. There are things that I saw that I never thought I'd see in my life and I will never forget them. So, yeah. Something that really struck me was I, I, I saw it last night in preparation for talking to you and it, I think, maybe reopened. Um, it made everything feel fresh again and in, in, in an interesting way. That You know, I've been doing this job for, for two years yeah. and... Uh, looking at this for two years, and then to be taken back to the opening. I mean, something that really struck me was that was the first 20 days of the siege of Mariupol, and then they got out. There's another 60-something days that happen, and there's nobody nobody inside. And so there's actually more time in that city that we know less about than the the footage we do have from Mr. Slav and and his team, and from you. And... It, it brought, I don't know, for me, it's brought everything back to, oh, this This is what we're talking about. You know, we sort of, we give updates on, you know, international politics and diplomacy, that sort of thing. But actually, this is the story. It yeah. was the, the wanton destruction of civilian buildings, of the execution of, of people going around their, their daily lives. I thought one of the most terrifying scenes was when they spot the tank, um, yes. the Russian tank approaching the hospital, and slowly it starts to turn its cannons towards the hospital, and they run. They get away from yeah. the window as fast as possible. I think the thing that this film does very well is it's unlike, and maybe I'm a bit biased, but it really is unlike any documentary I've ever seen because of how it brings you in. You're not just an audience watching something and saying, oh, that's a shame. The way it's narrated and the way the film is cut together brings you into the conversation immediately. There is no buildup. There is no kind of fourth wall, as it were. This film is, dare I use the word beautiful, but the film is so beautifully shot that it is heartbreaking on so many levels. And it feels like you're there. It feels relentless. It feels like you are actually there having these conversations, having to make these life or death decisions. And I think that's what's really made a mark on audiences, not just because it's Ukraine and it's current and and people want to support Ukraine and they want to understand what's happening, but 
it goes so deep that I genuinely think people will never forget watching the mm. way this documentary was put together and how the information was presented. When you look back at your translation work then, I'm kind of curious as to the kind of decisions you have to make when you're translating Ukrainian into English. What kind of, what were the moments where you had to stop and be like, well, like we could say it this way or we could say it that way? And how did you make those decisions? The thing with working with Frontline is they have always given me the push to translate the truth as it sits. There's no softening of the edges. There's no kind of you can say it this way or that way, or there's no making it palatable for all audiences. It is literally translating what it feels like to be a Ukrainian living through this. And those are the words that I'm trying to kind of, you know, being part of frontline means you get out the truth in that way. You know, well, I think in translators across the world, they will translate lots of different forms of media. And there's a way to engage an audience and there's a way to convey a sentiment. But I honestly think, you know, the way Ukrainians were talking in this documentary, there was no other way but to just say it the way they are saying it, the way they meant it, how frustrated they were at what was happening, how confused and how confused they were as to why they're being targeted, grieving families, people losing their houses, you know, people swearing about why this is happening and why this dictator is choosing to keep attacking their country. So I am very, very fortunate to work with a team who just keeps saying, like, say it as as it comes out. There's no changing how it is conveyed. Something that affected me quite a lot, I think, while watching it was, and this kind of goes back to what we said earlier, that this is just the first 20 days and the siege of Mariupol took, what, 85, 86 days? Yeah. Is that we don't, I mean, lots of the faces, the characters we meet, the people we meet in, in 20 days in Mariupol um, stayed. Yeah. They, they didn't They didn't get out. And we don't know necessarily what happened to them. Um, I was wondered, did you sort of think the same thing and how, how did you deal with that? I mean, I, I still think of the people, you know, when you do translations like this and there are hours and hours of footage and you sit with these people and they start to become like people, you know, in this strange way. And I think about whether they're still alive. I think about what they're doing. I wonder if they're safe. Um, you know, the, the extra footage that I've translated, which again, I'm hoping will be used for much more work that comes out from Mr. Slav and Michelle and, and everybody else at Frontline. There's so much more that people haven't seen yet that exists in this footage right now that is sitting waiting to be used. These are interviews of people who have lost their spouses, who have lost everything. There's a woman that I that I translated. She took the producers around her house that was busted into. She lost her husband. They took him away. She tried to identify his body at the local morgue. I mean, I have lived through their lives, like almost vicariously. I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, there were interviews with um, certain police that were there trying to figure out what happened in these torture chambers. And it was almost like a forensic and like detective work that these producers were filming and then having translators sit there and go, okay, well, this is so much more, so much more that people haven't seen that I think will come out when it's ready to. 
it's such a brutal watch, to be frank. And I wanted to know, after working on it for so long and still working on quite a few things to do with it, how do you deal with that? How do you try and find find the light as well as dealing with the dark? Uh, I think <laughs> I... You know, I don't, I have the luxury of being able to walk away. I keep reminding myself that I have family living through this. I have family who has had to survive living in a shelter occasionally, or have had to sit in their basement with no heat, no hot water, you know, their windows shaking. I, and I think to myself, well, I can't be there. You know, as soon as the war started, I, like many Ukrainians immediately said, okay, I'm going over. But I can't, I don't, I, I can't do it. I have kids and I have a life over here that I have to keep maintaining. And, you know, I thought to myself, well, if this is my effort to help, then this is what I'm going to do. And I'm t- I tend to be the kind of person that will stay up as long as it takes and sacrifice sleep. And maybe that's a detriment to my mental health, which it has been in the past, but I focus so much on the work that I need to do that maybe that was my survivor's guilt a little bit or secondhand PTSD kind of going, I can deal with it because that's my way of helping. I think a lot of Ukrainians in the diaspora feel that way. They can't be there. So the the, the second best thing is to be able to do the work that needs to be done to get the truth out there or to, to kind of impact Western audiences. And I'm lucky that I straddle kind of both worlds. You know, I speak, Ukrainian was my first language growing up. I speak it fluently, but I'm also in New York and I'm part of the diaspora. I'm part of the Western audiences. So I feel like I can connect the two. I can be the bridge. The diaspora is the bridge. And if I can do that, then that's the light that kind of got me through it. You know, I pushed ahead because I have the luxury of turning away. Ukrainians in Ukraine don't. And that was my reminder. For listeners who maybe have not seen 20 Days of Mariupol, what would you say to them? What would you try and say to say, these are the reasons why you should be watching it? I think I would say to people, the hard things are the moments where you learn the most about the world you live in, about what you can do to help Um, a country or a people in crisis. I think it's very easy to doom scroll and that amplifies people's fear and anger and frustration. And it's a comfortable rut to stay on social media and go, well, okay, this all looks terrible. I'm just going to turn away, close the laptop. I think watching a documentary like this, I would call it homework. Watch it in pieces if you have to. It's really difficult, but I promise you, whoever's listening, it will change your life. You don't have to agree with the message necessarily. I don't know if there is even a message, but you know, it's not political. It's not inflammatory. It's not pointing fingers and throwing slurs. It's this documentary is something that will show you the truth of what happened, just plain as day, black and white. And I think people just sitting with that and letting it marinate will change maybe their perspective. And it may then allow for hard conversations to be had when people feel like they now have more information. And always information is power. And the more factual information we have as a society, is where we find our humanity. Tatiana, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our audience to hear? My message is always this. I think 
amplification and support, whether it's in real life, having conversations, whether it's online, it means a lot. You may not be able to donate, but that's okay. Little things make a difference. And I wish people would understand. And the most important thing is waiting to listen and giving space for Ukrainians to share their stories, whether it's books, whether it's documentaries, whether it's opinions on or their stories about what's happening within their families. We are storytellers as humans. And I think when we don't wait for somebody to share their truth, I think it's a danger. I think too many people are shouting each other down when all we need is for people to listen. We just need the space to be able to share our stories. I'm lucky to be a translator. I'm lucky to be part of a machine that basically teaches people what the truth is. But I make a living as an author as well because I am I'm a storyteller. Ukrainians just want to tell their stories. That's I mean, I just wish people would understand that. It doesn't have to be about donating. It doesn't have to be about politics. It just have to it just has to be about listening. Tashana, when you look back on the documentary as it is, as it, as it was published, is there one image or one scene that really stands out in your mind? Oh, God, there are so many. But I think there is actually, yes, it's a scene that I hadn't referenced yet, but it's a scene that I translated actually of when the maternity hospital in Mariupol was bombed. And they were leading people out of the hospital, injuries, pregnant women. There is a pregnant woman that ended up not surviving that was led out on a stretcher. And there was a a little boy that came out, um, looked like he was about 10, 11 years old. And he came out and he was screaming for his mother, didn't know where she was, kind of lost her in the, in the, in the shuffle. And there's a soldier that came up to him and the soldier looked young as well. He looked like he was in his early twenties and he put his hands on his shoulders and he said, where you're looking for your mother or I'm paraphrasing here because I don't know exactly. I don't remember exactly what he said, but you'll see that the boy is looking at this soldier for guidance. And the soldier is probably just as scared as the boy, but he has to calm him down. He said, don't worry. It'll be okay. And that still that still sticks with me because i don't know i don't know what happened to that boy <clears throat> and i don't know what happened to that soldier but in that moment they were searching for courage within each other and you know what people probably don't understand is that soldiers themselves they are so brave but they're also probably really scared deep down they don't know what the day is going to bring to them. They don't know if they're going to survive, but they are providing some kind of hope for people, you know? And I think maybe that's all we need. Maybe that's what we're all looking for is somebody to guide us, somebody to tell us it's going to be okay. You know? Tatiana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David. It was, it was an honor to speak to you, um, to telegraph, to share this. Let's bring Joe Barnes back on. I know you've got a few more updates for us. Joe Barnes. So let's go back to the diplomatic updates. In Hungary, the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has said that Ukraine should be left as, and I quote, 
a buffer zone between Russia and the West, with allies giving the country security guarantees, but not accepting it in to the European Union or NATO. And that has been reported by the Kyiv Independent. So Orban said that this during a debate with former Austrian Chancellor Wolfgang Schusel for European Voices, whether we like it or not, whether Ukrainians like it or not, Ukraine is on the map where it is. The best prospect for it would be to form a buffer zone between Russia and the West with security guarantees, of course. So Viktor Orban, as we always say, is Vladimir Putin's closest ally inside the EU. He is sought to frustrate and slow down various decision-making on Ukraine at numerous points, and most recently on the EU's 50, euro, 50, 50 billion euro aid package when it blocked a summit in December, a European summit in December, but he then allowed it through at one summit at the beginning of this month. He opposed Ukraine being offered accession talks to join the EU, but he left the room and basically abstained and basically didn't allow allowed the vote to go through without his permission, which is interesting. So it's just more basically of posturing from Viktor Orban saying that Hungary, as an EU and NATO member, will not allow Ukraine to join either of those organisations. Um, then moving a bit further up towards the Polish border, where Polish farmers have blocked a border crossing with Ukraine, again kicking off a month-long general strike to protest against EU policies and a lack of government action to protect the livelihoods of farmers. So farmers in France, Belgium, Portugal, Greece, Spain, Germany have all been basically protesting against EU green policies. But in Poland, what they're really protesting about is the fact that the current trade access from Ukraine to the EU is on a tariff-free and quota-free basis, basically. You can move a Ukrainian product into the EU without any trade taxes or any sort of limits on those. And what has been happening is Ukrainian grains have been coming to Poland because that's the point of entry into the EU single market. And essentially, because grain is extremely expensive to move over ground, that stays in Poland and brings down the price of grains for local producers. And they have been um, very much complaining about that in Poland. So around 100 farmers and 50 vehicles have blocked the approach to Medkia. That's the border crossing, the main border crossing between Poland and Ukraine, halting traffic for all vehicles. And that is according to a Ukrainian border force spokesman. The Polish media said there are around 250 blockades across the country with convoys of tractors clogging up roads, holding up banners such as, without us, you'll be hungry, naked and sober. So yeah, that's going to take a little bit more diplomacy around it because the EU and Poland have struck a few deals, Poland and Ukraine have struck a few deals, but it hasn't quelled the anger. Now we go over to the US. So the US Senate has edged closer to passing an emergency aid bill to provide 60 $1 billion, that's £47.6 billion for Ukraine. The vote to progress with the bill, which also pledges $14.1 billion to Israel and almost $10 billion in humanitarian assistance, marks a critical hurdle in securing US support for Ukraine, which had been stymied last week by Senate Republicans moving to block a bill that basically connected US foreign aid, so to Ukraine, to Israel, to Gaza, with a internal US border security measure, and it's been dumped by Republicans who are essentially loyal to Donald Trump. So I don't have to explain this too much, but the money is seen as incredibly crucial for Kyiv at this moment in time. 
There are various sort of reports on the front line about ammunition shortages, the air defence units and people speaking on behalf of them have warned that, look, if we carry on getting long-range barrages, we might be out of Patriot missiles within a month and other various sort of air interceptors. So it's a real crucial time that this money is basically given to Ukraine to start deliveries again from the US. And this is what Senator Mitch McConnell, who's a Republican minority leader, had to say. He said, it's no exaggeration to say the eyes of the world are on the US Senate. And then he basically went on to add that US allies don't have the luxury of pretending that the world's most dangerous aggressors are someone else's problem and neither do we. So yeah, it's a big it's a big problem that USA and hopefully light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm guessing Tony or someone from our US Bureau will be able to come on and speak about it more in depth at some point. And then a story we looked at last week, but it wasn't entirely certain what is going on. But Ukraine has now accused Russian forces of using Elon Musk's Starlink satellite to basically provide internet service to them on the front line and help coordinate attacks against Ukrainian soldiers and positions. So the Ukrainian military intelligence agency has released an audio clip in which it said soldiers from Russia's 83rd Air Assault Brigade can be heard discussing setting up a Starlink system near the front line in eastern Donbass region. Uh, say Andrei Yusov, who's the, a spokesman for the in, me, Ukrainian military intelligence, said, yes, there are cases of Russian occupants using these devices. This is starting to become systematic. So Ukraine's military did not give any more details on how Russia may be using Starlink, but reports and photos have surfaced in the US and Ukraine in recent months of sightings of Russian forces with sort of the Starlink system. So an unnamed Ukrainian military source told the US website Defense One that dozens of Starlink units were being used by Russian on the, Russians on the front lines. When they have hundreds, it'll be hard for us to live. That's what the source had to say. But I think we should then go back to, mainly for the sanity of our lawyers, let, us, let you know what SpaceX had to say about this. So SpaceX said it did not conduct business with the Russian government and said Starlink does not work in Russia. But I actually approached Starlink about uh, SpaceX about this and said that doesn't answer the fact what happens in occupied Ukraine and that is exactly what is the is the question at hand and SpaceX had this to say if SpaceX obtains knowledge that a Starlink terminal is being used by a sanctioned or unauthorized party we investigate the claim and take an- actions to deactivate the terminal if confirmed so analysts though have said that frontline Russian soldiers may be able to hide the exact location from Starlink satellites by a sending out false GPS data. I don't know how true that is, but that is what analysts have to say. Um, And Russian internet sellers, so while there is no direct sales of Starlink to Russia, internet sellers are also advertising Starlink equipment for sale, which is in breach of Western sanctions. So Starlink, for some context, is owned by Elon Musk. It became an incredible focal point when... Elon Musk allegedly, according to various reports, decided that Starlink services should be turned off for Ukraine while it was using them to try and conduct a seaborne drone attack on the Russian Black Sea fleet in Sevastopol. And he basically said, look, we don't want to be a major actor in this war. Um, so stop that from happening. And I'll stop there, David. Joe Barnes, can I come back to you just very briefly for your final thoughts before we finish today? I, one, one of my sort of final thoughts is back to NATO and what happens with, it's not essentially a NATO argument, but it involves NATO, is what happens with the US contact group, which is more commonly known as the Ramstein format, where 50 or so 
of Ukraine's Western allies come together under the US basically to coordinate how military aid is given to Ukraine. There's a meeting on Wednesday in Brussels on the sidelines of a NATO defence ministerial meeting, but it looks like Lloyd Austin, because of health reasons, isn't going to be there. We know Lloyd Austin is a staunch backer of Ukraine, so that's not a concern. But what it does come about is what happens in the future if the US isn't so invested in aid for Ukraine under, say, Donald Trump or another leader for that fact if it goes on that long. And NATO is working out a few plans. There's nothing concrete at the moment, but there are a few ideas. Could it be institutionalized inside of NATO? Could NATO's secretariat be used to marshal these meetings, to organize them, bring them together, help plan logistics, etc.? That's one option on the table. We don't think it's going to involve sort of boxes with NATO's compass logo on it, making their way to Ukraine, because obviously NATO tried to not involve itself as a direct actor in this conflict. But I think then other sort of credible options that are being looked at is could the European Union take over that mantle and take on the organising, given that Ukraine is now an accession member of the EU, it's going to start its formal talks, it could be a member sooner rather than later. So will the EU take over that bonus? It's interesting to see how the political discussions in the US are being seen and looked at in terms of how do we plan for future aid as the war gets longer? Can we trust that America is going to be there? Or do we have to come up with our own plans within and rebuild existing structures to not to take into consideration that America might not be there the whole way through? And I'll stop there. Thanks for listening, folks. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter. And the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 